Well, Merry Christmas. It feels incredible to be here tonight, two years since we gathered in person to hear the Christmas story, light our candles, sing Silent Night, and celebrate the birth of Jesus. It is truly stunning how things we took for granted, like the yearly Christmas Eve service, have become more precious because of a global pandemic. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Even though we're facing a new variant of the virus and find ourselves waiting anxiously into the third year of a long pandemic, it is still good to be together here tonight. There is something like magic in the air on Christmas Eve. Our hearts fill with awe and wonder as we celebrate the mystery of the incarnation. And what a mystery it is, a mystery that is good news of great joy, the mystery of a child born in the city of David that is said to be the Messiah, a mystery wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. Have you ever wondered why God chose to come in the form of a child? People have been fascinated with this mystery for generations. In fact, this year marks the 15th anniversary of one of the most fabulous expressions of the mystery of the Christ child, an extraordinary prayer that was delivered for the first time right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm speaking, of course, of the prayer of Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights, <laughs> delivered by Will Farrell at his family's Christmas table. I consider it our hometown claim to Christmas fame. You know how it goes. Some of you have the whole prayer memorized. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I want to say, take my time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, handsome, striking sons, and of course, my red-hot smoking wife. Dear tiny infant Jesus, he continues, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip, and we hope you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And at this point, Ricky's wife, some of you have seen the movie, interrupts him to say, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him a baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. And Ricky explains, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best. And when you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. So he continues, dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a tiny little infant, so cuddly and yet omnipotent. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. I tend to agree with Carly on this one, his wife. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray or even sing to a baby, and yet we do it every year at Christmas, as if it's totally normal. The mystery of God coming as a child has led to all sorts of confusing sentimentality and an obsessive hyper-focus on children during the holiday season. And while Ricky Bobby's prayer may be one of the worst in history, it brilliantly illuminates the absurdity of this phenomenon. God did not come into the world as a child because God is cute and cuddly or because God wanted to be perceived as cute and cuddly. Most ancient civilizations, you may be surprised to know, were not very sentimental about children. In the first century, children were not considered to be human beings, but the property of the patriarch of the family until they became adults. 
They were on the bottom rung of the social ladder, and in addition to being lowly, children were extremely vulnerable, defenseless, and dependent on others for their survival. And most mammals, I don't know if you knew this, can eat and walk and fend for themselves from the day they're born, but not humans. No, we must be carried, fed, protected for years. Why would God enter such a precarious situation? It seems unwise and reckless. Why wasn't there some alternative way for God to come into the world? Well, in fact, Luke presents the child in the Christmas story as the alternative, as the alternative to the way the world is, as the alternative to Roman imperial domination and the empire of Caesar Augustus. Our carols always seem to skip over the fact that the Christmas story begins with an imperial decree that all all the world should be registered, or what we call a census. There's only two reasons back then to take a census. One, to find out how many people were eligible to be taxed, and two, to find out how many people were eligible to fight in the army. Census were taken to determine the only two things in life that are certain for most people, death and taxes. It was an ancient tool. Employed in the service of the oldest sins, greed and violence. Taxes and war, taxes for war, money and soldiers for Rome's empire of economic and military domination. God became a poor and defenseless child while the emperor was taking a census to become rich and powerful. And in doing so, God became the opposite of the empire, the opposite of Caesar, and a true alternative to any program of economic and military domination in our world. Biblically speaking, children are a sign of a new beginning, of a new creation, but it is precisely the poverty and defenselessness of this particular child in this story that is the point of the incarnation and Christmas. God became vulnerable and entered into the womb of a mother and into the arms of a father. God surrendered into the hands of humanity and said, here, you carry me, you bear me, you give birth to me, you you raise me up. You care for me. You show me the world. The great theologian Jürgen Moltmann wrote, A child is the beginning of new life. A child is disarmingly defenseless. His defenselessness makes our armaments superfluous. We can put away our rifles and open up our fists and find redemption from the curse of violence that only breeds more violence because of the child. We no longer have to go on like this, the way things are. His birth opens up for us a future of a life of peace that is different from all the life that's ever been before. It's interesting that the angel said, peace on earth was what came that night. At the end of the year, Google prepares a report with research on things that were searched for the most over the past year to analyze what this search data might reveal about what's going on, what's trending among us. Well, it wasn't peace this year, but it was close. 2021 was a year that many of us found ourselves striving to overcome personal and global challenges. And Google's search results determined that the world searched for one thing more than anything else in history this year. Healing. In every language, how to heal was searched more than ever before, followed closely by how to take care of your mental health, how to be strong, how to be resilient, how to make a comeback, how to move forward. 
It is spiritually profound to know the entire world is searching for healing. It means we're not alone. We are bound together in our brokenness, united in our quest for healing, bound together in a common journey in solidarity with millions of people who are searching for the exact same thing we are and the earth itself that is groaning. Irish poet Patrick Otama has written, there is something that can't be stated quickly. Only history can meet us on the day that our grief greets us. It is only when I sail across an ocean meeting you that I can meet you truly, that I can see you in me and me in you sees through me. You were the place of my standing on the day when my feet are sore. You are the harbor's landing when the day of the waves roar. You are the arms enfolding me when I reject my flesh. You are my gentle breathing when I have lost my breath. And though the fright time hinders, the nighttime lingers for us to grow inside her. And we will find her tough. And we will jostle with this mother, desperately wishing for another way of birthing out our living. But she is giving us our own selves. And we might live to tell the tale and we might find family on the day the gale takes us into harbor, into shelter, into holding, into home. Our world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, constantly changing. And with a pandemic raging once more, there seems like there's never enough time or space for healing. Thomas Merton wrote, we live in a time of no room. No room for nature or quiet or solitude or thought or attention or humanity. And this is troubling because I believe our healing can only come from finding room and a place and our space and our home in this world. Without a room, without a home, without a place, we cannot find true wholeness or healing. We remain fragmented, insecure, spiritually disoriented, materially displaced. And that's what Caesar's census and the world tries to do to us. The empire's unholy pursuit of money and power literally displaced thousands of people, creating a panicked crowds in every town, which is why Luke tells us there was no room and no place for Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Amidst the anxious demands of empire, there was no place for God to enter the world. Bethlehem was a tiny village, and there is not a single shred of archaeological evidence to suggest that there's even a Motel 6 in that town. In fact, the Greek word... Cataluma doesn't mean in, but guest room. The translation here should be, and they laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in any guest room in town. Houses of small towns like Bethlehem consisted of a room on the first floor for the family and a guest room on the second floor above where relatives and visitors could be provided hospitality for the night. Mary was forced to give birth to Jesus in the garage, in the barn, because there's no place for them in the guest room of any home in town. No one could find a place for a migrant woman who had just gone into labor, and so she was forced to give birth outside with the animals, exposed to the elements. It was bleak and cold and dangerous, which is why the story mentions that Mary swaddled the child in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger two different times. Luke is trying to illustrate for us the careful precautions Mary had to take to protect this child. In the end, the animals were the only ones, the only creatures, able to make room for Mary or for God. Far be it for us to imagine the Christmas story is not an ancient fairy tale, but one that's lived out each and every day by refugees and asylum seekers, migrant families fleeing, 
from violence and searching for a home in a world in which there is no room. In a 1543 Christmas sermon, the famous reformer Martin Luther said, The inn was full and there are many among us who think to ourselves, If I'd only been there, how quick I would have been to help the baby. Well, Luther said, why don't you do it now? Why don't you do it now? When we have no place in this world, there is nowhere to find healing and wholeness that we need to thrive. And this was impressed upon me a few weeks ago. I took my 11-year-old daughter to see the new movie version of West Side Story and Steven Spielberg's remake of the 1957 musical about an interracial love story born in the midst of a war between white and Puerto Rican street gangs in San Juan Hill. The conflict and violence is not simply the result in this new version of racism alone, but the pressure of 1950s urban renewal in New York City that is pushing poor whites and Puerto Ricans and other low-income communities out of their neighborhood in New York City. The tensions of displacement and the urge to protect their homes is what is fueling the rivalry between the gangs and yes, it remains a love story, but also a battle for territory in which everyone is losing their place and doing everything they can to cling to the every inch of home that they have left. And then comes the beautiful song Somewhere, which encapsulates this desire for place and home. In the original version, Tony and Maria sing it to each other, but in Spielberg's new version, it is sung by Valentina after Tony is murdered by a shark of the rival gang, giving the song a new meaning beyond the drama of star-crossed lovers. Now, this famous Bernstein and Sondheim ballad becomes a song about the hope that every one of us has, especially the poor and displaced, of finding home in a world in which there seems to be no place for us. With grief and hope in her voice, she sings... There's a place for us, somewhere, a place for us. Peace and quiet and open air wait for us, somewhere. There's a time for us, someday a time for us, time together with time to spare, time to learn, time to care. Someday, somewhere, we'll find a new way of living we'll find a way of forgiving somewhere. There's a place for us, for all of us. That is the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of the Christmas story. We all need love. We all need a safe place to call home. We all need to be accepted for who we are. And the good news of Christmas is there is a place for us. Not for some of us, but for all of us. Not just the wealthy and powerful kings and emperors, Romans or Americans, but all of us. God entered the world as a poor and defenseless child with no room to be born, no place to lay his head, no honor in his hometown to make a place for all people. He was in the world, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him so that all of us could be known and accepted. God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood where there was no room to make room for all the world. The angels, the shepherds, the child wrapped in rags, it means there's a place for us. The meaning of Christmas is that there is a place for the displaced, a place for the placeless, a place for the poor and defenseless, the refugees, those who get the doors slammed in their face for all of us. God entered history to help us find that new way of living, to help us find a way of forgiving, 
to offer us that path of peace, to create a world where no one ever has to be born in a barn again, where no one is ever placeless or displaced. And yet, this mystery God placed in human hands, in our hands, which means it's up to us. Each of us will have to live lives that ensure there's a place for all people in order to fulfill the promise of Christmas. We not only have to find our own place, but work to ensure that our families, our schools, our workplaces, our businesses, our homes, our churches, our towns, our cities, our world has a place for everyone, regardless of their race and gender, sexual orientation, identity, age, economic status, political affiliation, physical or mental capacity, religious belief. We cannot wait for God to come back and do it for us. Someday or somewhere, we must do it right here and right now at this moment in history in our little corner of the earth. There was no place for Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and yet because of what happened in Bethlehem, there can and should be a place for all of us. But we're the ones that have to make this promise a reality. This is how we become strong and resilient. This is how we find the hope to move forward and come back. This is how we're going to find healing to get through a pandemic. We do it together, arm in arm and hand in hand, remembering that God came into the world to make a place for us and that we are called to make a place for everyone else. Healing and wholeness are found. And the true meaning of Christmas is waiting for us, where we make a place for everyone, and where we make it our mission to welcome each other home. Merry Christmas.